This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Those everyday scenarios are exactly the kinds of daily activities that people struggle with, with any special need, but specifically with sensory, parents question themselves. And like you said, blame themselves. They often outright get blamed by other people, you know, manage your child, oh, it's just behavior. So we start to feel like it is our fault and we're not doing something right when in fact, there's just other things that we might need to learn and we need to understand where those behaviors are coming from. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I am your host, Dr. Dan, and let me tell you about our mission at Parent Footprint, and that is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives, happiness, health, and engagement. We firmly believe that awareness is the foundation of your vision of successful parenting. And with increased awareness and intention, we can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on our children. Today's show is Sensory Processing and Sensory Parenting with Kelly Bynes. Kelly is an occupational therapist who is certified in sensory integration with over 22 years of experience working with children, adults, and coaching parents of children who struggle with developmental challenges. She is author of the Ovis the Sheep series, and she has recently launched a parenting course for parents of kids with sensory challenges called Sensory Parenting, An Easier Way. We have lots to talk about today. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So let's talk. I have a few beginning questions here. One is your path of becoming an occupational therapist and us informing our, the audience what an occupational therapist is and then leading our way into this amazing book series, which has just taken off. Oh, thank you. Um, it's fun. Yeah. So my history, it's funny. I haven't been asked that in a while. Um, So I decided I wanted to become an OT actually when I was in high school. Um, And it was my mom that had presented the idea. And I originally thought about teaching, but I knew I wanted to work one-to-one. And I'm not sure how I knew that when I was young. Um, But I pursued OT from that time and went to and graduated from McMaster University, came down to the States from Canada. I'm originally from Canada. 
I heard that Canadian in you. I was waiting for that. (laughs) Came down to the States in 94 for my first job out of school. And I started in geriatrics, ironically, now working with kids. So it's the opposite end of the age spectrum. Um, And I kind of gradually worked my way down. So I started from geriatrics and then I went into adult mental health. And it's adult mental health that led me to working with teens and found that I loved working with adolescents at the time because there was so much hope, um, so much more potential for change working younger. And that led me to develop a child and adolescent program with a community outpatient uh, clinic or uh, co-op program. And that's honestly where the light bulbs started going off for me as far as sensory processing goes because I was working with all of these kids in an after-school program, in a respite program that I started, and I watched how these kids moved. And they walked different, they talked different. Um, All of these kids were on all of this medication. They had all of these support services, including wraparound services, and at the time, wraparound was a new thing. And I was so confused. I was still relatively young in my career. I didn't have my own kids yet at the time. And I was confused because all of these services that these kids had, the intensive support that they had, yet they continued to struggle in the same ways. Um, And so I started looking into sensory processing and sensory integration. And sensory integration started in the 70s. And Um, you know, it applies to, now we know it applies to such a broad range of other existing diagnoses. And so I just did my own reading. I then had my own kids, went back to work and started dabbling in private practice. And I think because that's where I kind of paused before I had mm-hmm. kids, I picked up there when I returned to work and started with a private outpatient practice and fell in love with sensory because um, sensory really is the bridge between mental health and physical development. And Mm -hmm. it was the first time that I felt like I could combine all of my OT background with mental health and really make a difference. And that's well, and let's tell. Let's stop. Let me jump in here for a second yeah. because I know I asked you a really big question, and um, we're going to get to the books. But I realize there's a lot to to dive in right here. So let sure. everyone know how do you define sensory processing and sensory integration? Because these are words we hear all the time, um, mm-hmm. and it, it it it's pretty general these days, and it it means some mm-hmm. pretty specific things. Yes. Well, it can mean both general or specific. And I think that that's why it's so confusing. Um, Sensory processing is an umbrella term. um, And sensory processing disorder is not a full official diagnosis in the DSM. Which is a problem we're going to talk about in a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think it complicates things for parents and for, you know, the general public. But sensory processing is this umbrella term that has subcategories. And the subcategories are basically describing different sets of challenges that a child might have. And so under sensory processing, you have what's called modulation difficulties. And that's what people 
typically classically think about when they think of sensory issues. So it's hypersensitivity to sound, hypersensitivity to touch. Lots of parents know, you know, their child has meltdowns regarding tags or socks or shoes, or they cover their ears when they go to the bathroom or when the vacuum turns on or when the dog barks, like, you know, all of the classic examples that people typically think of. But there's also undersensitivity and underarousal. So that whole category of modulation, being able to adjust the intensity of your responses according to what's going on around you. So that's modulation. The other category is sensory-based motor disorder. And so this is just gross motor, fine motor, visual motor function. Um, and of course, there's subcategories under those ones as well. And then discrimination disorder, being able to discern and tell the difference between types of input. For example, some children might not be able to tell the difference between hot and cold. Some children have really poor body awareness, which might come from tactile discrimination. It might come from not being able to tell your position inherently without looking in a mirror. Um, so just being able to know what's good and bad, what's what for you as a person, not, you know, from a moral standpoint, but what feels right or what what is distinct in your body as good or bad. Um, so those are the three main categories. And all of those categories help to describe behaviors that we might see in a child. And very often, it's behaviors that are problematic <laughs> for parents right, right. or for teachers or friends. You know, it just it's the things, the behaviors that prevent a child from doing the things or a person, actually, because adults have it, too. But um, it's all of the things that prevent somebody from functioning and engaging in the world. Well, and that's, that's key right there, um, that statement that prevents people from functioning and engaging in the world because we're often asked, you know, is this thing a problem? And I often say a problem is not a problem unless it's a problem. And then it's like, okay, how much of a problem is this? And if it impacts a child's ability to function and engage, we have a problem that we need help with, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And we often will use um, intensity, duration, and frequency. Mm -hmm. And that's going to look different for different kids within the context of different families. And very often the parent work that I do is talking with parents around just what they might need to tweak given the fit for them and their child. Um, and we'll talk, you know, we could talk about co-regulation forever, but um, really it's like you said, what's a problem? How intense is, how intense is it? How often is it happening and how long does it last? Mm -hmm. And I have a form that I give parents to fill out um, where they actually track those things for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And you're reminding me when you talk about behavior, um, I have a um, trusted occupational therapist that I've been consulting with for years. Awesome. And I would always get on the phone with her and say, uh, Gail, is, I'm trying to figure out, is this sensory a sensory issue or is this a behavioral issue? And then sure enough, what arrived at my office was a book, which I'm sure you've heard of called, is it sensory or behavior? Which uh -huh. like, this is the, right? This is the big question yes. is, is it, is the tr problematic and challenging behavior rooted in a sensory processing issue? And if so, we can have some understanding and some empathy and come up with a plan 
Or is it more behavioral, which I will still say all behavior, I think we both agree, does represent something. So just to say that something's behavioral, I think is misleading as well. Absolutely. And for for a long time, that was the question. Is it sensory or behavior? And I think recently the question has shifted to it's it's both. Um, And I actually recently have started shifting it from that to say sensory is behavior. And Mm -hmm. it just automatically pulls in a collaborative approach to supporting a child and family. Yes. So let, so I just want to recap here, sensory processing for everyone. That is, we all have sensory processing. We all process through our senses. Um, Particularly there is modulation, there's motor and there's discrimination. And if we're having a challenge in any one or some or all of those, we then would have what is called a quote disorder or a, 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 let's say a clinical legitimate problem. And you just led with, I love this, uh, you know, this collaborative approach. So, so what do you, how do you see working with these multitude and myriad of challenges with kids and their parents? So big, that's another big loaded question. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. It's going to look different for different kids and families. And, uh, you know, I can speak to the model that we use in our clinic, Um, We use a more intensive model than some clinics use where we try to see kids and families um, more than once a week. And so we get to that intensity because it's about how the brain and body are working together. And when we get an intensity of input that's targeted and supportive, and because we know the brain changes with practice and with repetition, then we're going to see hopefully quicker changes. Um, And we also pull parents into those sessions so that parents are involved right from the get-go and they're involved in the sessions so that they can be a part of whatever we're doing in those sessions. They're getting lots of practice on a weekly basis. Um, We do a lot of parent education um, so that parents are learning the knowledge and the information, and we're able to have direct, concrete conversations with the parent without the child there, um, and conversations that can't or don't often happen within the session. So that's the first thing I think of when I think of collaboration, is working directly with the family side by side, and sometimes having them lead the way where they are an actual play partner in the session. And we kind of step back and function as a coach, um, a facilitator, and um, a resource, basically. Um, The next piece of collaboration is with other disciplines. Uh, We very often will work with mental health clinicians, um, like yourself, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, counselors. um, We refer for outside testing if we think that there is an actual diagnosis that might be there or to rule one out. Um, We work with nutritionists if we're working with a child who has a feeding challenge. Um, We work with speech therapists. We go to the schools, so we'll collaborate with teachers to put together plans. So just a lot of that ongoing collaboration is really important. And this is also where I think of that 
kind of coexisting when there is a diagnosis that exists like an anxiety disorder and we're seeing sensory processing challenges, we need to make sure that we are consistent with our approach because sensory anxiety can be very different than a pure mental health anxiety disorder. And we can right. actually right. Yeah, increase it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we don't want to do that. Um, How and often? In, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say as an OT, I also don't want to undermine the approaches of, say, a cognitive behavioral therapist or an ABA therapist. Um, so we really need to know which approach is the primary approach that we're using with that child. Right. And this is where collaboration with allied professionals is so important. Um, yes. So related, you you um, you said something what I what I was thinking, which is you know you added the anxiety piece to it, and what I was thinking was how often, just from your clinical practice over the years, do you see someone who just has sensory processing issues, not to minimize those issues, versus um, what we call co-occurring, or in a clinical term, comorbid, which is a very morbid word, but basically co-occurring. <laughs> co-occurring issues like a learning issue, anxiety, ADHD, uh, of course, um, autism spectrum. Like what, what do you see in terms of singularity versus multiple challenges? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, the research shows that it's up to approximately 15% of a typically developing population has sensory challenges, exclusive mm-hmm. of anything else. Um, that's research. We tend to see a higher percentage of kids that have coexisting conditions. Um, I think that's because that's the path the parents have taken to find us. We get a lot of referrals from mental health clinicians and pediatricians. Um, so they've already identified a problem, right? Um, we get a few word of, well, a few, we get a lot of word of mouth referrals. Um, but I would say out of those word of mouth referrals, maybe 50% of them are pure, just sensory challenges. Um, So we do work with kids that don't have any identified diagnosis, but a larger percentage of our kids have an identified diagnosis or Mm -hmm. end up with one because we then refer for further testing. And how often would you say, and again, I know these are these are tough questions. I, it, I'm thinking of misdiagnosis because I have found over mm-hmm. the years so many kids, because they present with all the behavior, there's the term that many of us don't like, ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah. of course, ADHD, which can bring on some impulsive and challenging behavior. Like, How often do you see where someone has been diagnosed with something else and what was underneath was actually primarily a sensory processing challenge? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the short answer to that is not often, actually. Um, okay. But the longer answer is that Sometimes I believe more often than not, it's the sensory piece has gone untreated. And so they end up with a different diagnosis. So I consider that not necessarily a misdiagnosis because the diagnosis they have is relevant and it's appropriate and Mm -hmm. it has actually led to some supportive treatment for that family. Um, But it doesn't mean that the sensory isn't there. And it doesn't mean that we can't go back and address it. And you bring up the ODD as a really, really good example. Um, 
you know, for example, I have a client I'm working with right now that I believe may end up with that diagnosis, but there is a very strong sensory component. Mm -hmm. I'm not holding off on referral for testing because I know regardless of whether the diagnosis ends up there or not, we're going to need mental health support. Right. But I'm also not referring without treatment. I am mm-hmm. continuing to work with them intensively to see if we can preempt a diagnosis and or minimize the mental health implications of this mm-hmm. sensory challenge. Mm-hmm. Does that make um, sense? And that, that makes a lot of sense. And not remembering if I actually said ODD, what it actually stands for, Oppositional Defiant Disorder. And they're um, really, it's a, it's a label that's used for kids that... Um, really are defiant across settings, across people in a very difficult sort of way. And I'm just recalling for, for listeners an earlier, um, an earlier podcast with Mona Delahook who talks a lot about, again, how yes. behavior is often an expression of something. And I'm also yes. thinking of Ross Green, who we all um, yes. adore, who talks about you know understanding yeah. the mystery. So there is so much behind that oppositional behavior. And often... Uh, you know, sensory anxiety are are two of the primary culprits from my experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that nervous system response, that stress response that comes on board (laughs) as a protective measure, regardless of the trigger, I believe we need to respect that, that behavior as a signal and a cue. Mm -hmm. And um, if we don't, and we continue to push, I think that's when we do send kids into or down that mental health rabbit hole. Um, And we could preempt some diagnoses if, if we all learn to, and it's, that's a whole other discussion if we, but if we learn to shift how we're working with these kids and um, how they're, how they function in school and, you know, again, whole other, whole other realm, but yeah, behavior, sensory is behavior and we have to respect those behaviors as signals for sure. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, working, supporting a child is part working with child and part working with parents. And, um, we're going to talk about your parenting program, but before that, um, we have a character named Ovis, who <laughs> Ovis um, has lots of challenges that through, right? And Ovis teaches kids about that, why it's hard to go to school, why we don't like to eat certain foods because of certain textures. So tell us about the origination, the origin of Ovis. Yes. So I love Ovis. <laughs> I'm a little biased, but um, <laughs> so I I had purchased multiple books to use. I, I love children's books and um, just was looking to use them in my sessions. And over the years, there've been more and more children's books about sensory um, in different shapes and forms. And so I had bought different books to use in my sessions and just, they fell flat for me. And um, I don't, I don't even know exactly why and couldn't articulate it. A few of them were too long. A few of them, you know, were children's books, but were trying to talk to the parent using language that was too big visual images, pictures were not, um, what I felt were engaging enough for the kids I worked with, I guess. Um, so I just thought I could, I could do this. I'm going to, I'm going to make my own story. And it was in reference to an individual client I was working with at the time. 
And I just put together a quick story that I thought might be helpful to her and um, didn't have pictures. It was just a story. And I thought, well, maybe we can draw pictures together or something. And so I used the story in the session and I thought, you know what, she, that, this, I, I need pictures. I got, we got to make this a thing, but it was all to use in my sessions. I never really even thought about publishing it. Mm-hmm. And then I went to a Christmas party and I bumped into a person, the illustrator, uh, Christine Mary, and uh, she and I were friends from years back. Our kids played soccer together and she was a designer and she had designed, helped design my logo and my first website and all of that stuff. So I bumped into her at a party and for some reason it flashed into my brain and I said, Christine, have you ever thought about illustrating a children's book? And she said, I just finished a children's literature course. I've always wanted to do that. Like Synchronistic. It was, it so was. And I hadn't even seen her in like two years. Um, so she said, let's have coffee. So we did. And that's how Ovis was born. And uh, we just, you know, started teasing out the characters and uh, like what I wanted the pictures to look like. I already had a lot of the story written, obviously, from my session. So yeah, that's how Ovis was born. So tell everyone, so t- Ovis is very cute, everyone, when you're going to go see the book, <laughs> uh, the books, you're going to see how Thank cute you. Ovis is. And um, Ovis, job. Ovis um, does not want to go to sheep school. Right. Nope. No. So he tell us about like Ovis's challenges. <laughs> so Ovis, um, Ovis does a lot of confusing things. And I tried to pull in a lot of examples from the years and the different clients I've worked with. So it's not like a child's going to have all of those issues all at once, although they could. Um, and so Ovis makes lots of noise, even though he doesn't like loud noises, Ovis can't sit still and he wiggles and acts goofy when it's circle time. Um, He tries to get out of printing because he struggles with that. Um, He doesn't like sitting too close to Shelly the sheep. Um, she, She just, there's a picture. I love that picture of her kind of snuggling up too close to him. Um, and so he just acts up and the teacher thinks he's bad. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that. (laughs) With that, she calls the OT to see if the OT can help. And the OT comes in and the OT is a sheepdog because sheepdogs are nurturing and caring. Um, and so the OT talks with Ovis's parents and then they do some work together and things don't end up perfect, but Ovis learns that sheep school is not so bad after all. <laughs> <laughs> That's a quick and, and what did you, what did you hear about the, when kids just started to respond to this? What were you hearing from parents? So it's funny because I've had mixed responses from the kids, but I get raving, glowing responses from the parents. Hmm. And hmm. the kids that do like it are in love and just like, we have the Ovis doll sitting on our sh- on the shelf here in our clinic and they, they come in and they just, the first time they're here, if they've already seen the book, they just can't believe that Ovis is actually here. Um, I've received letters and cards after a session. I received a little picture of Ovis drawn by one of our kids. And, uh, yeah, kids, kids tend to say, Hey, that's just like me, which I just about cried the first time I heard that from a child in a session. 
um, I got an email from a parent saying that they had used Ovis or read Ovis at bedtime and they had an entire conversation for the first time about sensory. Mm. Um, and so that was really heartwarming. And then I got another email from a parent saying that she took the Ovis book to her IEP meeting and they justified services based on <laughs> now understanding where based some of these on Ovis. Wow. Right. Wow. I know that's huge. So that's huge. It's absolutely huge. Um, and then I've had OT and OT buy a copy of Ovis for the entire team of OTs in their school. So that's great. yeah, that's really great. exciting. And you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, some kids love it and some kids mm-hmm. don't. And my experience with whatever the developmental challenge is, this it's it's pure it's uh it's identi- it's about identity development. And mm-hmm. some kids embrace, oh gosh, other people are like me and I have trouble reading or I am anxious like others or I have sensory issues, and other kids just aren't yet ready mm-hmm. to accept that about themselves and again for parents it's developmental and it's a slow process Mm -hmm. to try to help our kids understand their profiles yep makes sense and i think those that haven't responded like that really fits for them because it's a non-issue it's not like they just don't like it they don't have any negative things to say they just kind of move on they're like okay yep they finish the book and they move on Um, right so that makes that fits Okay, so let's move to your class. And I love the the name of the class, Sensory Parenting. That is a great name, but then for every parent listening, an easier way. Don't we all want an easier (laughs) way? Please. So so tell us, give us the conceptualization. How does this class work? So easier is an acronym. And so the course is six modules and each of the letters of easier stands for something different. And it's basically everything that I wish I had learned as a parent. I actually am a sensory parent myself. Um, And so I wish I'd known all of these things um, when I was raising my little sensory person. Um, and it's a distance format. So there it's 12 weeks long, six modules. So a live lecture, um, via zoom, uh, every other week and a live call with homework assignments in between. So there are 12 calls, but six modules and parents are actually practicing the skills that we talk about and executing on the information that I share in each of the six modules. And are you able to share the acronym to give people a little teaser about what they're the, you know, the topics that you are discovering? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So E in easier is for emotions and theirs and yours, because that's where we talk about co-regulation and setting up a framework for understanding our own sensory systems and knowing our role as parents um, in co-regulating with a child who's got sensory challenges. Um, A is for anchor senses. And so understanding what's going to really ground and calm and um, help a child regulate. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of discussion around sensory diets. And so this section on anchor senses is where we talk about the types of sensory diets and why I actually don't love the term sensory diet. Um, 
SPD comes under S, of course. Right, <laughs> and right. That whole umbrella, you know, the nosology and the categories, and just trying to understand where your individual child fits into that whole framework. I is intuition and trusting our intuition as parents, because regardless of the clinical knowledge that's out there or all of the information that people have to share and research, we know our kids best and every parent um, has intuition. And I think we learn not to trust it and we have to go back and learn to trust it again. Um, Especially parenting a child with special needs. You know, there's so many Mm -hmm. professionals that parents interact with. And um, a lot of parents, I think, learn some helplessness and become disheartened. So I really want to empower parents to return to that intuition. Mm -hmm. And then expectations, how to set realistic expectations, and how to measure outcomes. And that's where we talk about that intensity, duration and frequency and measure change. And, you know, when we have a sensory child, we're in it for the long haul, just like any long term chronic challenge. And uh, we need to learn how to measure change and progress so that we don't get too overburdened or um, so we don't lose hope, I guess. <laughs> um, right. And then right. resources. R is for resources. And one of my goals with the course is to have every parent leave feeling like they've got what they need for the long haul. And it doesn't mean they're not going to need additional professional supports eventually or at different times throughout their Mm -hmm. parenting journey. Um, But I really would like parents to, again, be empowered and feel like they know where to go to get what they need. And that's it. That's that's wonderful. And also thinking back, you talked about your sensory kiddo, thinking about our kids and early life. Um, I would have loved this information as well. Is <laughs> just remembering how hard regular activities are and how how difficult it is as a parent in these public settings, whether you're dropping your child off at daycare or school or taking them to their first soccer practice or the birthday party or so you know hard. trying to have a family dinner with other family members or out in public at dinner and for the neurotypical um, family those things just go so much smoother and just remembering how much like other judgment and self judgments like oh my god yes. like what what is wrong with us? Like, what kind of parents are we? How come, you know, and, and it's just to have a sense of community and understanding to know like, this is, this is a real thing. And it's not your fault. Yes, completely. And, and being able to navigate some of those responses that you're having and having a place to put them, right. Um, and then still act in a supportive way for your child. Um, It's a lot. And Mm -hmm. those everyday scenarios are exactly the kinds of daily activities that people struggle with, with any special need, but specifically with sensory, sometimes in different ways, because it's not obvious to other people um, that their child has something. And so parents question themselves and, like you said, blame themselves because there is no identified diagnosis and, well, it must be me then. And they often outright get blamed by other people, you know, manage your child, oh, it's just behavior or, oh, they'll eat when they're ready. And so we start to feel like it is our fault and we're not doing something right when, in fact, 
there's just other things that we might need to learn and we need to understand where those behaviors are coming from. Absolutely. And it makes me think of the I in easier, which is intuition and Mm -hmm. something my wife and I learned in our and continue to learn uh, or be reminded of, I should say. Um, And wanted to share with everyone what you said is intuition. And that is no one knows your kid better than you do. Um, People make a lot of assumptions and judgments, but you know when something resonates. You know when a professional tells you something that does not fit. Um, Mm -hmm. Really, you need to trust yourself and have that, try to cultivate that inner strength and empowerment that you know what's best for your kid. And because you're good, we always get the judgments from whether it's teachers or doctors or family members when we have sensory kids, you're going to get that stuff. It just, there's no way around it. And it's just try to how to stay anchored internally with your knowing of what's going on and everything you're doing to support your child. Yes. Yep. And I, I really believe that. And I've seen that. And when parents are able to do that and follow their intuition um, and have support to do that, it just makes such a difference in their relationship with their child, but then also their ability to help their child function. Um, and that's going to look different at different ages, but it's so it's the core of how to be supportive for a sensory mm-hmm. child. Yep. And if you could say just a little more about you touched, you, you mentioned co-regulation. It, mm-hmm. uh, that's a really important concept. Um, could you tell everyone what you, what you mean by that and just a little a little um a little advice about how to achieve that sure um so you know years ago when i first started learning about sensory it was a lot about how the child's brain and body were working um because it was this new concept under the umbrella of neuroplasticity so that the brain could change right and helping the brain and body learn to interact more effectively. So it was all about the child. Now, there's so much information available and research that's been done around the nervous system. And you mentioned Mona Delahook, and you know I'll pull in the work of Stephen Porges, as she mm-hmm. did for sure. Um, and his work and um, Peter Levine's work, all of the work on trauma recovery, Um, Mm -hmm. has informed our understanding of the nervous system. And so what I do with parents when I talk about co-regulation is talk with parents about their role as a sensory input for their child. And, you know, we talk about how they, the parents, have a nervous system and the child has a nervous system. And the child, because of mirror neurons in their brain, are taking in the visual input from the parent and their nervous systems are connected. And so it's this ongoing, constant, dynamic interaction, instantaneous (laughs) between parent and child. But when we use a sensory lens, we can start to come up with strategies that we can do or use differently when we're parenting. For example, um, if a parent sees a child roll their eyes or take a deep breath like they're going to scream or yell, if the parent then escalates their facial expression, the child is now seeing the parent's facial expression, which validates the child's escalation. So we talk about it in terms of a visual input. 
instead of often there's literature around, well, take a deep breath and stay calm. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. that would right, be great. Right. And if we could, we would. <laughs> right. But if we notice it from a visual perspective and teach parents to notice their child's visual signal and then notice what they're doing with their face, it's a different, it's a different way to think about it and approach being able to stay calm. Mm-hmm. Another example mm-hmm. is um, kind of taken from SE or somatic experiencing. It's like feeling your feet on the ground. And so I talk with parents a lot about don't say anything. Don't use verbal, feel your feet on the ground. And they're like, what? <laughs> so I said, remember, you yeah. have a brain and a body. <laughs> we have to talk about your brain and body before we talk about your child's brain and body, because they're going to do what they're going to do. And you can't help them until you are in your brain and body, because we need your brain online to help your child. And so that kind of begins, you know, those are examples of conversations and how I kind of explain this co-regulation because people can co-regulate in a positive way or they can (laughs) co-dysregulate in a negative way. And that's often what we see. It's why parents and families come to us, right? Totally. And it's part of the reason we are doing this show together is because of our um, shared belief about this and this co-regulation and this awareness of what you just said is so aligned with parent footprint, which is one aspect of parent footprint is understanding your emotions and your energy and knowing what energy and emotion you bring into the room and how many of us have had this experience where our kids look at us and say, what's the matter? Or why are you mad? Mm-hmm. And we're like, no, 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 no yeah. I'm fine. And I'm not mad. Yeah. And it's like they're accurately micro-reading our yes. energy and emotion. Yes. And yeah. these kids, especially sensory kids, are sensitive. And so to your point, yes. like ground yourself. Don't yeah. like take a deep breath and realize that we are so connected and our kids so connected to us. Yes. If we, we can't expect them to regulate when we are not regulating ourselves. Correct. Yep. And sensory kids are not only sensitive, but some sensory kids are misinterpreting cues. Right. And so there are kids that have auditory challenges where a simple directive statement to you and I might mean nothing. And because of the way that their auditory systems are tuned or not tuned, they're interpreting that as a threat. And so they start to escalate. And so helping parents understand their own child so that they can then shift instead of thinking, well, my kid's always overreacting at me. It's not personal. It's how their system is responding to your cues. Exactly. Kelly, it is time. (laughs) It is time for the the parent footprint moment question. You knew it was coming. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as a person, um, an individual or a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child. Okay. So I'm going to try and be succinct. I had to pick two. (laughs) Okay. Um, So the first one was when I was sitting in one of my training classes for my certification in sensory integration. And my sensory kiddo was just under two at the time. And it was a giant light bulb for me. 
And I was already an OT. I was already working in pediatrics. I was already, you know, interested in sensory. So it wasn't her that prompted me to go into this area. But it was this giant light bulb moment because I'm listening to all of these examples. And she wasn't even yet two, but I knew as they're describing it, I thought, this is my kid. Here I am. And I thought at the time, I'm here so that I can be a better parent. And that's the first scenario. That was the first example of this, oh my goodness. And so as an OT, using that lens to be a better parent, unfortunately, I'm not sure it worked that way because it's hard to be a therapist and a parent. Um, But then years and years later, um, when I did decide to go in and develop my own practice, sitting in front of this one parent in particular everything she was saying resonated with me. And of course, you know, as a therapist, I'm not necessarily going to disclose all of that, but it just was in my brain. And all of a sudden, again, this light bulb moment of, oh, wow, like Mm -hmm. I, I, she, I was a parent so I could be a better therapist and it's not either or it's all connected. And so for me, it's really this coming together. And that's why I'm so excited about doing this sensory parenting work because I get it. I totally get it. And I've learned a lot since. And there is so much to know, but there's also so much that parents can do that they don't realize they can do. And so I, it, those are the two that have come together for me to shift both my parenting and my professional work. Don't you love it when it all comes together? I do. I really yeah. do. I'm very yeah. lucky. It's it's a good it fit. It just enhances your work and your parenting. Um, I, ho- I hope so. <laughs> yes. Thank you for sharing your moments with us. Sure. Okay. So tell everyone where they can find your class, your books, and um, everything to fo- keep following your wonderful work. Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah, so people can go to my website, which is otc-frederick.com, and you can contact me through the website. Um, There's a contact form on there. You can also follow me on Facebook at OTC Frederick or on Instagram at Sensory Expert. Um, OvisTheSheep.com is also on our OTC Frederick website. So whichever one people remember, OvisTheSheep.com will take you to our main website or vice versa. So thank you. Awesome. How can we forget about Ovis the Sheep? Everyone's going to check <laughs> out Ovis. Cute Ovis. Check <laughs> out cute Ovis. It. Thank you. And I just, I'm so grateful to you, Dr. Dan, for having me on. And I look forward to even more conversations and collaboration. Let's plan on it. Thanks so much for talking to us about sensory processing and sensory parenting. Um, Everyone, check out Kelly's website. Check out Ovis. And um, totally, uh, we're just totally aligned and, uh, of course, aligned with you listeners. And that's why you tune in. All right, guys, that concludes our show. And, of course, remember these guiding things Try to be the person you want your child to become. He and she are watching and taking it all in. Model for them. Keep your feet rooted in the ground. Manage your emotional expressions. Talk to them about problems that you have experienced and how you are problem solving to show them resilience. Ask yourself the guiding question. 
What footprint do you want to leave?